Professor Eichengreen will be speaking to us on populism and central banks today. He'll have uh, 35 minutes, after which uh, he's agreed to take questions from all of you. Um, and you may submit those questions uh, via our own conference page or through Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. Uh, please do so using the hashtag KatoManCon. Your questions will appear uh, on my screen uh, and uh, I'll take as many of them as we have time for. But please keep them succinct so I, I can uh, 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 take more than just a small number. Uh, Barry, welcome to Cato and uh, take it away. Thank you, George. Um, I have a few slides as um, you can see, uh, on only a few. Um, let me start by uh, thanking George and Jim Dorn and others at, at Cato for the kind invitation. My qualifications for speaking on the connections between populism and central banking are, are two. Um, first, the book George mentioned uh, entitled the, uh, the Populist Temptation, um, uh, which was a, a history of populism published in, in 2018. Uh, uh, a time that now seems like uh, eons uh, ago. Secondly, I have a project with Nurgis Dinser, uh, Constructing Measures of Central Bank Independence and Transparency, both historically and currently. The irony is that the, uh, the two projects are non-intersecting. Um, I didn't write about monetary policy or central banking in The Populist Temptation. I went back and looked and discovered that the term does not appear in the index. Nergis and I uh, examine the legal relationship between central banks and governments, but we don't look at the political colorization of the executive, the rhetoric of government officials, or other indicators of populist tendencies and pressures. So I appreciate the opportunity uh, today to take a first step at bringing the two strands together. To avoid emulating Justice Potter Stewart, uh, I cite him in my book as knowing it when I see it. Let me start with an explicit definition of populism. I take this to be a political leader, party, or movement with anti-elite, anti-institutional, and or nativist and nationalist tendencies. Anti-elite refers, of course, to lack of deference and respect for experts, specialists, and other successful and powerful individuals. One can well imagine that the term elites might apply to the PhDs, bankers, and business people who sit on central bank boards. This unwillingness to defer to expert opinion is often associated further with disregard of technical concepts like budget constraints, which gives populist uh, policies their characteristic volatility and uh, inflationary bias. Um, by anti-institutional, I mean lack of deference to the uh, social and constitutional institutions uh, uh, of government, uh, such as the separation of powers. 
one can readily see how this could apply to the statutory independence of a central bank as, uh, as institutionalized, for example, in the Federal Reserve Act. Indeed, we not infrequently see populist leaders criticizing the central bank, seeking to overturn its decisions, threatening to fire the central bank governor, attempting to replace him or her with a more compliant successors. Um, by nativist or nationalist tendencies, I mean hostility toward foreigners, people of other national origins, and especially immigrants. This one is considerably more of a stretch when it comes to central banking. I am, however, reminded of congressional criticism of the Fed for having extended dollar swaps to foreign central banks during the global financial crisis. And one can also detect nationalist rhetoric uh, in the complaints of finance ministers and other officials about so-called currency wars. Because it's highlighted by the title of this conference, uh, I should note the considerable debt that the Federal Reserve itself as an institution owes to the populists. None other than William Jennings Bryan strongly supported the creation of the Fed. He described it in a 1913 letter to Carter Glass as, quote, a triumph for the people. The people as opposed to the, the elites, of course, being a classic populist trope. As Bryan appreciated, the Fed freed the country from depending on elites like J.P. Morgan for dealing with financial crises such as that of 1907. By providing the elastic currency the people required, the Fed promised to protect them from uh, the deflation that haunted Brian. The decentralized structure of the Federal Reserve System with its 12 regional reserve banks chimed in with populist antipathy to concentrated financial power. The one thing that Brian and his fellow populists failed to achieve was preventing bankers from serving on the boards of reserve banks. That was something that another notorious populist, the radio preacher, Father Charles Coughlin, famously campaigned for in the 1930s after the Fed failed to meet its mandate of preventing deflation and financial crisis. Populism clearly is a problem for central banking and for central bank uh, independence in particular, whatever your preferred theory of the latter, uh, of the merits of central bank independence. If you think that central banking is a complex task requiring careful deliberation by thoughtful, experienced individuals, then there's a danger that a populist leader will appoint individuals lacking appropriate temperament and background. If you view an independent central bank led by a conservative inflation of a central banker as a way of addressing the time consistency problem that would otherwise give rise to inflationary bias, then you should worry that a populist leader will appoint central bankers who are not conservative and inflation averse. If you think that making the central bank independent is a way of limiting the contribution of monetary policy to political business cycles, then you will worry that populist leaders will re-inject politics into central banking, especially in the lead up to elections. If you think that the argument for independence is that it allows central bankers to adopt long time horizons appropriate for the conduct of monetary policy, then you will worry that populist politicians are temper temperamentally impatient, 
that they're not reticent about reminding uh, their appointees of that fact. Um, it's important to note that these problems are not unique to politics and politicians with a populist bent. Central bank independence in the US as elsewhere has never been absolute. Central banks are always subject to political pressure. Milton Friedman in 1962 and making the case for an autonomous central bank famously observed that the central bank is likely to retain its independence only up to the point where it, its uh, objectives conflict with those of the executive. Neither Richard Nixon, who pressured Arthur Burns to keep interest rates low in the run up to the 1972 uh, election, nor Ronald Reagan, who did the same to Paul Volcker in 1984, as Volcker recounts in his memoirs, are typically regarded as populists. When I think about these issues, I'm reminded of, of a thoughtful article from 20 years ago by Alan Brazen, where he highlights the tension between political insulation and uh, um, political responsiveness in the context of monetary policy. He explains that both insulation and responsiveness have value and that there is a trade-off between the two. So the task for institutional design is to identify a point on the efficient frontier that produces socially acceptable outcomes. Allen notes that these observations are not peculiar to monetary policy. A variety of other government functions, think vaccine authorization, are delegated to expert bodies to ensure a degree of insulation from politics. In practice, very few consequential economic policy decisions are, are made by direct democracy, except in peculiar places like California and Switzerland. Uh, to take a current example, we insulate fiscal policy from partisan political pressures, partially but not entirely by design, uh, by maintaining the 60 vote closure rule on the filibuster in the Senate. We can go we, we typically go further in the direction of insulation from politics for monetary policy than for fiscal policy. Grayson's explanation is that monetary policy is more easily abused. An opportunistic politician needs only to announce a change in the central bank's uh, policy rate, which he could do with a snap of his fingers or by replacing the central bank governor whereas opportunistically changing levels of government spending or taxes is more involved legislatively. It takes longer to implement administratively. That's the assertion anyway, uh, although I'm not aware of systematic evidence uh, of the contrast. In addition, and now I, I, I come to the controversial part of my remarks, Fiscal policy has more prominent distributional consequences, which makes limiting political responsiveness through delegation more problematic. Different interest groups, the argument goes, should be able to agree on what a monetary policy that is not short-sighted looks like. In contrast, they will have very different views of how the structure of government spending would look under an optimal long-run fiscal policy. So Grayson writes, quote, 
The conflict of interests in fiscal policy is both across time, the investment aspect, and across groups with very divergent interests, even in a long-run equilibrium, while the conflict of interests in monetary policy is primarily across time, end of quote. Thus, it's only for the, ag it's only for the aggregate dimension of fiscal policy, the level of spending or the size of the deficit, where the intertemporal dimension, what Grayson calls the investment aspect, dominates. It's only there that one sees binding rules, fiscal analogs to the Taylor rule or a fixed money growth rule in the monetary context, or where one sees delegation to an expert panel, like an independent fiscal council, analogous to the board of an independent central bank. So I wanna ask the question of whether we now need to reconsider the underlying assumption that the distributional consequences of monetary policy are second order. Do we need to reconsider that assumption given the attention recently devoted to this aspect? And if so, does that reconsideration have implications for central banking? And what, what does it have to do with populism anyway? Without question, there's been a sharp increase in articles, comments, and speeches by critics and defenders of central banks alike, including speeches by central bankers themselves, highlighting the distributional consequences of monetary policy. I have some more slides here, although I'm having trouble pulling them up for whatever reason. My shell is not cooperating. So I'm going to have to talk through them rather than show, show them to you, I'm uh, afraid. Uh, if you look at Google's Ngram viewer, which tabulates all, all mentions of strings of words in publications, you see zero mentions of the phrase distributional aspects of monetary policy prior to 1960. There's then a first peak in 1965, inflation was accelerating. A second higher peak in 1977, inflation was accelerating. A third very considerably higher peak in 2002. And a fourth peak uh, at roughly the same level as the third in 2019, when the series currently ends. I conjecture that if we had data for 2020, 2021, the, the last latest peak would be the highest. Already in the middle of the last decade, Ben Bernanke, and Mario Draghi commented on the distributional consequences of monetary policy. At the Fed, we've had speeches and comments by Chair Powell, Governors Bowman, Brainerd, and, and Waller, Presidents Bullard, Daly, and Williams, among others. Claudio Borio at the BIS recently calculated the share of speeches by central bankers in advanced economies and emerging markets that mention inequality or quote, distributional consequences slash impact of monetary policy, finding that uh, such mentions rose from neg negligible levels at the beginning of the decade to 3% in of all speeches in, in 2007, 3% again in 2012, and 9% in recent years. And you will recall that during the 2020 presidential campaign, candidate Joe Biden proposed amending the Federal Reserve Act to add to its dual mandate responsibility for, quote, 
aggressively targeting persistent racial gaps in jobs, wages, and wealth. He hasn't repeated that call so far as I know since assuming office, but a group of Dem Democratic members of, of the Congress introduced a bill intended to modify the Fed's mandate to minimize and, and eliminate, quote, uh, racial disparities in employment, wages, wealth, and access to affordable credit, unquote. As for the actual distributional effects of monetary policy, there are again a, a, a large number of studies, in, including quite a few coming out of central banks themselves. Uh, the IMF has published a compendium of those studies and the BIS devotes a chapter of its most recent annual report to international evidence on the question. My favorite of these studies is one coming out of the uh, Swedish Riksbank in 2021, Amberg, Janssen, Klein, and Pico. Again, I could show you if the slides were working, take my word for it. They use administrative data, which enables them to avoid the problem of top coding incomes. Uh, they focus on monetary policy surprises, and they find that a surprise uh, loosening of monetary policy disproportionately benefits two groups. It disproportionately benefits those at the very top of the income distribution, since they receive disproportionate amounts of capital income, and those at the very bottom of the distribution, since their income from employment is especially sensitive to monetary shocks. Put it another way, monetary policy has both income and wealth effects where the income effects uh, predominate at the bottom of the distribution, the wealth effects at the top. Uh, I think those patterns are likely to generalize to other national settings, although to exactly what extent is not clear. So why have we seen this increase in attention to the uh, distributional effects of monetary policy now? Most obviously, there's been more attention to the problem of inequality generally. Uh, most measures of income inequality in the United States have been trending upward since the 1980s, according to my colleagues, Emmanuel Seas and Gabriel Zuckman, that uh, more attention has been paid to the problem can again be inferred from Google Ngram data. The frequency of mentions to income inequality began rising in the mid 1980s. It peaked in 2014. That's when Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century appeared in English. But uh, the frequency of mentions has remained elevated subsequently. Then we saw the election of Donald Trump, subsequently the electoral victory victories of uh, progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, events that raise concerns that mainstream politicians and mainstream political institutions were not doing enough to address the issue, and that their failure to do so was breeding support for unconventional out of the mainstream politicians, including of the populist variety. Central bankers may not like it, but there's no reason to think that they or their institutions should be automatically exempted from this uh, complaint. Um, finally, the Fed's putative role in the development of inequality would not have become the subject of such scrutiny 
had it not had the Fed not been required by circumstances to pursue unconventional monetary policies. There's some evidence and widespread perception that low interest rates and quantitative easing push up the prices of financial assets, which are disproportionately held by the wealthy. There's some evidence and widespread perception that low interest rates have been one important factor in the rise of housing prices, which benefits homeowners relative to renters. Given this, it's entirely, entirely logical that the Fed should come under scrutiny for its contribution to observed inequality trends. Notice that there's nothing especially populist about these observations. Uh, however, uh, those monetary policy actions took place against the backdrop of uh, repeated bank bailouts mounted in response to financial crises in which the Fed was involved. The pattern encourages the perception that Fed policy, not excluding monetary policy, favors bankers and others, other relatively wealthy and successful individuals. Arguments that Fed policy is unequalizing, therefore fall on receptive ears. They provide fodder for anti-elite populist campaigners, uh, populists who campaign against the central banking status quo. The pro obvious problem is that the bank can, that the Fed can do relatively little about inequality. Uh, the trend toward increased inequality in the United States dates from the 1980s. It long predates the current period of low interest rates and QE. In other words, numerous studies, which I cite in my book, so I won't hear, show that this inequality trend has been associated mainly with, in descending order of importance, skill bias, technical change, globalization, taxation, education and training, and declining union density. Monetary policy in comparison is a blunt instrument for addressing this trend since its effects on the distribution of income are second order compared to the factors I just mentioned. And because it affects different dimensions of inequality differently as I just described. Uh, the Swedish study finds that monetary stimulus raises the relative incomes of both the lowest and highest deciles of the income distribution. It's a reminder that different measures of inequality will show very different associations with the stance of monetary policy. The same is true of racial inequality. There was a paper from the New York Fed, Barcher et al. 2021, earlier this year, which showed that racial inequality in the labor market was reduced by uh, monetary uh, stimulus. Black unemployment fell by more than white unemployment in the wake of monetary stimulus, but that racial wealth inequality increased because white households held more financial assets. Finally, uh, saying that monetary policy is a blunt instrument for addressing inequality is not the same as saying that central banks can do nothing about it. As regulators, they can address predatory practices that target the disadvantage. They can encourage competition in the provision of financial services, competition that fosters financial inclusion. Finally, 
central bankers, I, I know I've said finally more than once, but this is really, really the, the finally, central bankers can tailor their communications to the problem. They can acknowledge that inequality is a concern. They can talk about what government and society in general, as well as the central bank, can do about it. They can acknowledge the contribution of their policies, even if slight, to the development of the problem. I know there are those who argue that central bankers should limit their remarks to topics that bear directly on the conduct of monetary policy. I know there, there are those who argue uh, central banks should limit the problems they discuss to those related to their core mandate, price stability and high employment in the present context, going beyond that mandate and acting as free form social critics will lead politicians to question their institutional independence and attempting to solve problems over which monetary policy has little leverage is setting the central bank up for failure. I know there are those who say that, I disagree. When an issue rises to the level of an existential crisis, it is reckless and irresponsible for a central bank not to address it and not to do what it can do to help solve it, even if slight. Uh, the central bank would, would then appear unresponsive to political imperatives at a time when some response was deemed essential. The central bank would be on a socially unacceptable point on Drazen's political ins insulation, political responsiveness trade-off and insisting on that position would engender real threats to the central bank's independent status. It would give ammunition to the institution's populist critics. I've made this same argument elsewhere about climate change. Central banks have limited power, mainly in their capacity as financial regulators to help meet the climate change challenge, except insofar as it impacts inflation and employment, climate change is not central to the central bank's mandate, but to not address a problem that poses an existential threat to humanity would be politically unresponsive. It would give fodder to the Fed's progressive populist critics. It would ultimately jeopardize the institution's independence. Does inequality similarly rise to the level of an existential threat to economic and political stability in the United States today, there, thereby justifying central bank efforts to address it. That's something that each of us and each member of the Federal Reserve Board as individuals need to decide for themselves. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Barry. And uh, uh, now uh, we're going to, uh, field some questions, or you're going to field some questions, I get the privilege of, uh, of asking the first question as uh, this session's moderator. And what I'd like to know is um, what you think of the argument that, uh, that many have made that the Fed's uh, outsized balance sheet, and this is true for central banks more generally, that the, the vast increase in the size of uh, central banks' balance sheet sheets and the scale of their asset purchase programs has, uh, has inevitably made them 
targets for all kinds of populist calls for them to engage in in uh, in uh, distributional objectives or fiscal objectives of the sort that they would not have been under pressure to undertake or to pursue prior to 2008 when there was no such thing as <laughs> quantitative easing. What, what do you think about that? Is it inevitable that in a regime where central banks are capable of such large scale operations that they're going to be targets of populist attempts to have them use their balance sheets for all kinds of non-macroeconomic purposes? So point number one would be that I think the recent uh, increase in the size uh, of central bank balance sheets, including that of the Fed, was unavoidable and, and necessary when we use all available instruments to, to meet uh, economic and, and global health crisis. That includes in, in, enlisting the Fed's balance sheet. I think it was uh, unavoidable. I think it's clear that having an enlarged balance sheet complicates the Fed's life going forward. It, it um, means that a higher level of interest rates would be uh, in, in inflicting losses on, on the Fed's own portfolio. It means that the process of fiscal consolidation that we will have to confront at some point becomes more complicated. But I would put the larger balance sheet pretty far down the list uh, 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 of, of um, factors that uh, put pressure on the Fed specifically to address income or, or wealth inequality. Um, I am, remain one of the few, <laughs> I think, who is pretty, pretty confident that uh, we're not going to see strong evidence of fiscal dominance going forward. So if the Fed is a little bit behind the curve at the moment, it's not because of fiscal dominance. It's because of the communications corner into which it painted itself. Thanks, Barry. Uh, Tom online asks, what is the best protection from populist influences on the Fed? How does it, how does it compare, whatever this protection is, I guess, uh, to protections from political influences? So I think the uh, we have a central bank that need that is independent and accountable for its actions. Uh, central bank independence is only only sustainable if the central bank, which picks its tactics in the short run, is ultimately accountable to the public and the political system in the, the sense uh, of having followed its mandate. Its mandate. So uh, one way in which the Fed uh, holds itself accountable is, is through its communications. It needs to explain why it's doing and how what it's doing is consistent with its mandate as it defines uh, that mandate, as that mandate is defined more broadly. So I, 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 I think being transparent, explaining clearly why it is doing what it's doing is, is the best protection it has from political pressures. We have a question from Michelle online who asks, uh, when you wrote your book on populism, did you imagine, uh, you mentioned you didn't address the question of monetary policy, but did you even imagine that uh, we would find ourselves in a situation where monetary policy could become a, 
an object of populist, uh, <laughs> I guess, uh, uh, populist pressures. Um, yes, I think I, I, I think I could imagine that. Although, as I said uh, at the beginning of my um, keynote, monetary policy was not a not a uh, focus of that 2018 book. But I could imagine it because the original populist movement was, in part, a reaction against the prevailing monetary policy uh, uh, of the time on the part of farmers and other debtors who would have preferred a lower interest rate environment. Mm. Uh, and now we have a question from Anna, also uh, writing online. And she asks if monetary policy, if monetary policy is a blunt instrument, is that not beneficial to policies that might suffer from favoritism? I'm not sure if I understand the question myself, Barry, uh, but uh, can you uh, uh, can you figure out what well, I think I think Anna is concerned about capture of policy and that um, uh, uh, if the distributional consequences of monetary policy were as evident, and potentially powerful as those of fiscal policy, it would be harder to delegate monetary policy to an independent institution for the reasons that I described. So uh, if one values, as I do, central bank independence uh, in, 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 in the context, context of the dual mandate, then there is a saving grace as Anna implies to the fact that the distributional consequences of interest rate changes are, are relatively weak. Here's one from uh, Gustavo, uh, also online. He asks, Milton Friedman late in his life wrote, it is my conviction that when push comes to shove, the president will always get his way, regardless of who is running the Federal Reserve. Would you regard the current rise in inflation as being due to the increase in populism in the United States today or in Europe today, in the EU, either case? So we, we disagree with Milton Friedman at, at our risk, but uh, <laughs> I, I would say um, presidents get their way regardless of who's running the, the Federal Reserve half the time. So Richard Nixon got his way. Uh, by uh, leaking misinformation about Arthur Burns wanting a salary increase to the Washington Post. But Ronald Reagan and, and Jim Baker did not get their way in 1984. Paul Volcker exited the room without a word and continued pursuing his preferred monetary policy. Now, uh, Reagan did not reappoint Volcker three years later, but I'm not sure that really is evidence that uh, presidents always uh, get their way. Um, I think that uh, there is uh, a, a view within the Federal Reserve and there is a has been a view within the administration about the benefits of running the economy hot. And it's running hot at the moment. Is that uh, a matter of populism or is that a matter of the uh, Federal Reserve staff and the uh, uh, economic advisors to the president, who I would at the moment, who I would not characterize as populists, drawing certain lessons from the 
2008-2009 financial crisis and its aftermath and not wanting to repeat the mistakes of the past. Um, George, you very kindly mentioned a couple of my books in the introduction. One you didn't mention was 2015, Hall of Mirrors, mm -hmm. which is about the mistakes of the past, the Great Depression and the Great Recession. And the point of that book was to say, every crisis is not the same. And if the lessons you draw from the previous one may not be appropriate for the current one. So we're learning that uh, uh, the mistakes committed after 2008, 2009, withdrawing stimulus too quickly is the way I would put it, may not be the right lesson to apply to 2021, 2022. Thanks, Barry. I, I think we could add Harry Truman to the list of presidents who didn't uh, have their way, get their way with the, the Fed. Although he didn't waste any time firing uh, uh, Thomas McCabe, but he didn't get his way with McCabe's replacement either. Uh, Nikhil online asks, are some monetary rules better suited than other rules for resisting populist pressures, particularly in emerging markets where central bank credibility is typically shaky at best? Right, I think um, the weaker the independence of the central bank, the simpler the monetary rule has to be. Because again, independence and accountability go together. Accountability and communication are easier, the fewer dimensions and escape clauses uh, the rule, rule entails. I take it that uh, your remarks earlier about currency boards uh, tie into this point. Uh, at least to the extent that they could be conceived of as very simple, uh, as institutions designed to implement extremely simple rules. Right, uh, currency boards would be out there at one end of the spectrum. At the end of the spectrum. Uh, Corey online asks, how do you think populist influences on central banks will change over time? There's a lot of talk, but do you think uh, the populist efforts are yielding any actual results uh, for presumably for the, the populists? So I wasn't um, able to join earlier uh, sessions of, uh, of this conference, but I would hope there had would have been some discussion about whether um, these anti-elites, anti- uh, institutions, nativist, nationalist politicians and movements have a future or not. And if we're concerned about uh, out of the mainstream political movements of this sort, I hope there will have been discussion about what might be done to uh, strengthen the political mainstream and, and weaken the influence of um, out, fringe political groups whose um, uh, influence is not always beneficial. So um, the answer clearly depends to um, Corey, Corey's question depends on, on, on the country concerned. Um, one, one of the countries that I, I follow because I have lots of friends there happens to be Turkey where you see uh, the president firing, I think it's now three successive central bank governors. Um, uh, you see the, the central bank half-heartedly half embracing the president's theory 
that high interest rates are inflationary and you see the currency tanking. So there are cases where uh, um, anti-elite authoritarian politicians are influencing monetary policy and that influence is not waning. Um, I think we see other, other countries, um, Germany, for example, where uh, broad coalitions of parties are able to form governments and, and uh, right-wing extremists, left-wing extremists are not part of that coalition where uh, uh, um, parties that would be putting pressure on the European Central Bank to do something different are, are not in government. So I think the answer depends on how responsive mainstream political parties and the political system are, are to valid concerns, whether they can beat back the, the populist threat or not. That was the bottom line of my book. Well, Barry, we have one more question that requires a very short answer and yet <laughs> may, may not be amenable to such. Uh, let's go ahead and try. Frederick asks, could the problem of populist pressure be solved by limiting the Fed's mandate to price level only mandate? So I think um, Frederick's question is consistent with the earlier question about uh, emerging markets. The more intense is political pressure on a central bank, uh, the more uh, sense it makes to simplify, limit the mandate uh, to, to fewer targets or a single target uh, as a way of enhancing the ability of the central bank to communicate its uh, goals and explain how its tactics relate to those goals and, and thereby to be accountable to the political system, maintain its independence. I would argue that in a, in a setting like the United States, there is a trade-off between simplifying the mandate in order to uh, solidify the central bank's independence on the one hand and making the mandate too simple both for economic reasons and political reasons on the other. Thank you, Barry. Uh, folks, I'm afraid uh, that's all we have time for. Uh, let's please uh, all uh, uh, give Barry a, a generous round of virtual applause. <laughs>